morning, Providence. We're going to finish Luke 7 today. Turn to Luke 7 and verse number 36. Luke 7, 36. I hope you have enjoyed the dry party of Memorial Day weekend. I have a feeling it's not going to stay that way. But um, when a, the sermon is entitled, Who is this Jesus? Taking it from um, the, the text of Scripture today. So if you'll stand with me, we'll begin reading in verse number 36. There we go. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city was a sinner. I'm going to stop there. When you see the word behold, it's something shocking. And behold, it's unbelievable. Here's this woman who's a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, the point of that, and I'm not going to talk about it too much today, is when you are being, when you are touching somebody who is unclean, that uncleanness moves to you. But that's not true of Jesus. And so uh, that's, that was his point. Verse number 40, and he answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it to Jesus. I'm going to say one more thing because uh, these are things I'm not going to cover in the middle of the message. And Jesus answering him. He's answering his thoughts. He's interacting with the guy's thoughts. Think about what Luke is saying there. It's, it's just so fascinating. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One old owed 500 denarii, about two years of the wages. The other 50, that's about two and a half months. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, short little uh, story in the life of Jesus. Uh, the, 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 color and the painting of the different characters in this narrative are just stark and clear and um, surprising even, Lord. And I pray that you will help us to not lose our awe and surprise at the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will not lose the wonder 
of our salvation, the grace that has been extended to us uh, evil sinners. And I pray, Lord, that that will drive our worship and our service and most of all, increase our love for Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. So as you read through Luke, Luke gradually begins to build a tension in his narrative. And you see it when you see that uh, the tension between the Pharisees and Jesus has gradually been building. For example, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus feasts with tax collectors in the home of Levi. The story ends with Jesus saying that he came to be with sinners and not the self-righteous. You know, the self-righteous, that's obvious who he's talking about there, right? In chapter 6, the Pharisees, in response to Jesus healing the man with a withered hand, discussed what they might do to Jesus. So Jesus is not their Messiah, and we're trying to figure out this guy, and so what do we do with this guy? How do we shut him up? And today we come to a banquet in which the Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to be a guest, and we're going to see one more tension. And where Luke goes with this narrative, this particular one and his gospel is that the gospel and eternity provide us with great reversals. And you're going to see that all the way through here and all the way through the Gospel of Luke. Eventually, what you're going to see is that the Jewish people, by and large, not 100%, by and large, they reject their Messiah. That's where Luke is going. But in verse number 36, it says that the guests were reclining at table. Now, what is this table they speak of? It's a piece of furniture called a uh, triclinium. Triclinium is a three-sided table. And this is actually an example from Pompeii that was covered in volcanic ash. And you see tri, the three sides here. The guests would lie on mats with their feet sticking out. And the, the servants would come and serve them in the middle. You can kind of see a little ledge there. And so that's how they were served their food. The, the servant could go right in the middle of them. And they can talk right across each other. And then um, in... in Israel, and I imagine it's the same way in other cultures, this most likely was an open courtyard where uh, they, were, they were reclining because that's where a lot of these we have found in archaeology, not me, but archaeologists have found, and people would be sitting on the outside in this courtyard able to listen to the conversation. And so um, these meals were not private. People could come in and watch, and most likely, uh, since it was in the courtyard, there were a number of guests there, and um, some of the guests, they could sit and chat or just listen to the conversation that ensued. Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to view it, in this particular story, the Bible says, behold, we have an unwanted guest. Uh, I, it's not advancing for summer, thank you. So, unwanted intruder. Have you ever been eating outside and had an unwelcome or unwanted guest come? Maybe they land on you, or maybe they cause something to land on you, and it can ruin a meal for certain people, right? It, it reminds me of the uh, birthday party scene in What About Bob, where Bob shows up after having this death therapy and basically ruins Leo Marvin's birthday. If you remember that movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. But the Pharisee experienced this shock when an unwanted guest appeared. It says, Behold! Something shocking is about to happen. What happens? 
a woman who was a sinner arrived. Now, some think that she may have been a prostitute. We don't know. That's, that's certainly possible. Um, frankly, we just don't know that information. But the fact that she's called a sinner three times means that she was a notorious sinner of some sort. In the honor-shame culture of the day, and this is important, remember that culture is honor-shame, and there's still a lot of cultures that are not Western cultures that have honor-shame as, as something that rules because families live together in extended families. In the honor-shame culture of the day, a notorious sinner arriving at the house of a righteous man was scandalous. Okay? So this was scandalous that she dared show up at the home of such a righteous man. She should not have been there, nor should she, nor should she even thought about showing up there. The problem was that she knew one thing. And that thing that she knew was that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And he still is today, isn't he? Jesus is a friend of sinners. He showed compassion to the centurion. You remember that? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Um, he showed compassion to the widow. We saw that last week. He's shown compassion to other poor sinners. And the common denominator of all these people, the widow, the centurion, and the poor sinners, is they're on the outside. They're not in the midst of the dominant um, power center of culture. They were on the fringes. They were outcasts. And, um, and so in each of these episodes, Luke describes, whether it's the centurion widow or the poor sinners, describes a need that only God can meet. Only God can meet these needs because these people are outside the circle of privilege. Now this woman, another mistake that she made is that not only did she arrive, but she didn't stay quiet, did she? Instead, the Bible says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. If you know anything about them, they were a single piece of um, alabaster carved in the middle. They're very, very expensive. Very expensive alabaster, and the ointment inside would have been expensive as well. If you remember later on in the other three Gospels, you have Mary uh, uh, anointing Jesus with a flask, and uh, Judas said, well, that's a year's wages. That's a year's wages right there. And so it was very expensive. As she wept, um, she wet Jesus' feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, and then anointed them with ointment, she was overcome with emotion. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I'm going to throw this out to you because of the way this story goes. I don't think this is the first time that she's met Jesus. I think she's met him before, and we'll see why in a little bit. Um, I, I think that as we get into the story, we're going to see that this woman was forgiven and she knew she was forgiven because somewhere, sometime, Jesus had already forgiven her and she was there simply out of love. Her focus was completely on Jesus and she, had, she didn't care about the opinions of everybody else around. She didn't care what the hoity-toity, the uppity-ups, the, the, the privileged in the society thought about her she didn't care what the other attendees thought. She was so overwhelmed. Listen, she was so overwhelmed with the grace of Jesus Christ. 
And we see three ways that she's overcome and overwhelmed with the grace of Jesus. First of all, uh, next, uh, first of all, she forgot herself completely. It was, it was bad enough for a woman with her reputation to show up at the Pharisee's house uninvited. I mean, she shouldn't have done that in, in the eyes of the culture. But in those days, it was shameful for a woman to let down her pa- um, hair in public. Did you know that? To let your hair down in public was extremely shameful. It was, it was a sign that you were an adulterer. And that's how people think that she was a prostitute. I don't know if she was or not. All I know is that she could have been weeping at Jesus' feet, saw that her tears wet his feet, and the only thing that she had were, was her hair. We, we don't know what's going on. But the, the Talmud went so far as to say that a man could divorce his wife if she showed her hair to another man. If you watch um, any kind of TV shows today with Orthodox Jews in them, and I don't know how many of you have, uh, my wife and I uh, have watched a few of those. Uh, the women, married women, wear wigs to make sure that not one hair of their head is shown to any other man in public. So it still holds to that. I don't know if you knew that or not. But uh, this, this woman no longer cared what other people thought. She so loved Jesus that she forgot herself entirely. Purely and passionately, she let her hair fall down. Um, next. Secondly, she showed humility. She poured ointment on Jesus' feet. Now, ordinarily, and this is important, ordinarily, expensive gift was used to anoint someone else's head. Okay? Only a slave cared for a person's feet. <coughs> it's kind of like this. When you have a birthday party for your kid, you don't feed all the seven-year-olds um, filet mignon, do you? You feed them pizza or something like that, hot dogs, right? And so to throw that ointment on somebody's feet is like giving a six-year-old filet mignon instead of a hot dog, because they're going to appreciate the hot dog a whole lot more, right? If, if children, if you have a problem with that, come see me. We'll talk about steak, Okay. But this woman, she took the position of a servant and she poured this expensive gift on Jesus' feet. And so she showed humility. She did what only slaves did by touching uh, the feet of Jesus. Nobody else in the right mind who was not a slave would touch a person's feet. It was an expression of humility. Next. Finally, it was an expression of affection. When the woman poured out her perfume... She was pouring out her heart with the fragrance of her love. That ointment would have most likely um, covered the smell of even the food that they were eating. It would have been a fragrance floating through the whole courtyard, and it would have been, in Jesus' eyes, the fragrance of love. Does your life have the fragrance of love in it? When people talk to you, when people interact with you, do they, do they smell the fragrance of the love for Christ and the love for others in your interactions? And then she kissed Jesus' feet. And according to the tense of the verb here, she continued to kiss. She went on kissing. And so here we see the extravagant love of a forgiven sinner. As Luke revealed the true identity of Jesus Christ, he has shown people responding to him in faith. 
And now he shows somebody responding to him in love. It's been faith, 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 faith. This, as far as I can tell, is the first scene in Luke where somebody responds to Jesus in love. So we see that a disciple of Jesus Christ is a lover of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus desires the affection of our hearts as well as the faith of our minds. You know, um, typically in the type churches that this church is and the circles we run in, we know doctrine very well, don't we? Or at least we pretend to if we don't know it. Doctrine is very important. But doctrine, as important as it is, must be connected to love for Jesus Christ. And if your knowledge and your affection are not in line with each other, then you have one of two things that happens. Either one, you become cold and dead and analytical, or you become warm and fuzzy and undiscerning. And you have to have both of them together, don't you? And so... He, he shows someone responding to him in love, which means a disciple is, is a lover. And Jesus, he wants the affection of our hearts. You know, so often we treat the Bible like it's a manual. Oh, I've got this problem. Let's see, where do I turn for this? That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not a textbook. It's, it's not a set of instructions. It is a picture, a portrait of Almighty God and His great salvation and is designed to draw our affections to God. And so, greet God with extravagant affections. Fall into the arms of His love. Bow at His feet in worship. And weep for joy that your sins are forgiven. Have you ever wept for joy that your sins are forgiven? Next. Now Luke turns his attention to the host the Pharisee and his thoughts, which were nothing but judgment. You know, if Jesus were truly a prophet, he would know about this woman who <gasps> is touching him. This man's attitude was judgmental. He was, he was quick to condemn other people for their sins. And, for, and then when he did, what he did with these people that he condemned is he placed himself in a separate category. He was righteous. They were sinners. He couldn't see the extravagant expression of love from this woman. He was blinded by his own attitude. Have you ever been around people that are blinded by their attitude towards things? You have, because we all are. <laughs> One way or another, we all are blinded by our attitudes. Her actions were a complete departure from what is socially acceptable. Even today in the Middle East, the worst sin a woman can commit is to lose or to appear to have lost her virginity outside of marriage. The most important asset uh, that she has as a woman is her reputation. And the whole honor of the family hangs on the reputation of women. By thinking this way, by thinking judgmentally, the Pharisee thought that he was maintaining high moral standards, but in fact, he was loveless, graceless, and merciless. And here Luke is showing us two responses to Jesus based on two totally different attitudes about sin and grace. There were many contrasts between these two people, weren't there? For example, one had a high social position. The other one was an outcast. One was a host. 
The other was an uninvited guest. One was angry. One was overcome with joy. One was still evaluating Jesus. The other one decided to trust him with her whole life. Um, But the fundamental contrast was this. What's the most important contrast? It is one of them believed that God had grace for sinners, and, and that was only one. Even without saying a word, the woman proved by her actions that she trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins. But the Pharisee had no room for grace in his theology, and he believed that grace was unavailable to sinners like this woman and unnecessary for a righteous person like himself. Next. At this point, Jesus speaks to Simon and begins to interact with his thoughts, and he does it by telling him a parable. The Pharisee was about to find out that Jesus really was a prophet. Not only did he know what kind of woman this was, but he also knew what kind of man was sitting across from him. And so Jesus told a little parable, verse number 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of the one will love him more? Well, what's the answer, Captain Obvious? That's pretty easy, isn't it? We understand that. Um, Simon, though, he was wary. Look at the way he answered. He said, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He didn't want to admit that, did he? He was right, of course. 500 denarii was almost two years' wages. And anyone forgiven a debt that large would be eternally grateful. So Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Next. Jesus then made application. He turned and he said, do you see this woman? Simon certainly saw this woman, didn't he? But he didn't see her the way Jesus did. He only looked at her with scorn since she started touching Jesus. But Jesus was about to reveal that Simon had the same disdain and scorn for Jesus as he did for this woman. Simon had done almost nothing for Jesus. Think about this. He did not even fulfill the the basic duties of ordinary hospitality. He He didn't provide a basin of water for Jesus to wash his feet. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. And he didn't put oil on his forehead. He was barely hospitable. This rude response shows that Simon had almost as much contempt for Jesus as he, as he did for this woman. Rather than honoring Jesus with common courtesy, Simon treated him with arrogant indifference. Simon may have been religious, but he had no love for Jesus. Next. There are many people in churches who are religious, but have no real love for Jesus. How do you know? The Bible says out of the abundance of a mouth, the heart speaks, right? They'll get excited about everything, many things, but have nothing to say when the conversation turns to Jesus. They suddenly get quiet when the conversation goes to the glories of heaven and and spiritual things and what God has done in people's lives. And so we too have to be careful because if, if we don't watch our hearts, guard our hearts, we can begin 
treating Jesus with the, with the, same, uh, the same way. We don't give him the honor of our worship each day. We wake up each day thinking about our goals or what we want to do or something exciting in our life. Uh, many times people don't even greet him in the morning with prayer. This shows a shocking indifference to the Son of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to do this, but what are your first thoughts in the morning? You ever just say, God, thank you? By contrast, this woman did everything she could. She did everything that this Pharisee failed to do more. When, when Simon didn't provide basic hospitality of water for Jesus, she wet them with her, her tears, probably tears of joy. When Simon provided no kiss of greeting, she showed how unworthy she was by continually kissing his feet. Um, Jesus said, by the way, you didn't provide oil, but she gave ointment. Let me explain that. Olive oil was abundant and cheap. Olive oil was so cheap during that time. And that's what Jesus was speaking of. You didn't even give me some cheap oil to anoint my skin because the dry climate, you, you need to constantly keep oil on. If you've ever lived out west, you know what I'm talking about. Constant moisturizing, right? And so you didn't even provide me with basic moisturizer. Instead, she used expensive ointment on my feet. This woman brought an alabaster box, very expensive, and in Simon's eyes, she wasted it on Jesus' feet. Major contrast in attitudes, isn't it? The, the way that Jesus paints this picture and the way Luke paints the narrative, it's just, it's, it's beautiful and it's stark and it's revealing. Next. Now we're going to go to the great reversal. Here's Jesus' conclusion. You ready? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, here's a question. Was she a sinner? <coughs> Jesus said she was a great sinner. Her sins, which were many. You want to talk about sinners? Front and center, this woman was a large sinner. But she's been forgiven. She's a forgiven sinner. And everybody who's in Jesus Christ is a forgiven sinner. Isn't that wonderful? You know, we are called saints because we are, we are chosen ones. We're set apart for Jesus Christ. But as long as we're in this world, we are still sinners as well. And the very fact that Jesus saved us, how many sins did you commit this week that you know of? The very fact that he saved you, knowing that after he saved you and me, and I wrote in my devotion the other day, if you remember, not only do we rejoice in our salvation, but Jesus rejoices in our salvation. Is just That is amazing to me. How can Jesus rejoice in the salvation of someone that he knows is going to sin against him after salvation? Amazing, amazing Savior that we have, isn't it? I hope you don't lose that wonder and that awe that you have on, of your salvation. But she'd been forgiven, and the point of the meaning of this parable becomes clear. It is the forgiven who love Jesus the most. 
The more people have been forgiven, the more they love. And Simon even had to admit that. So what did the woman's passion for Jesus say about her? It proved that the great debt of her sin had been forgiven. Everybody knew that she was a sinner, including the woman herself and Jesus. Now, did he overlook her many sins? He didn't overlook them. He he acknowledged them, and then later on he died for those sins. So he didn't overlook them at all. Jesus knew the full extent of her sin, as he always does. Nevertheless, this woman was fully forgiven, and the story tells us not once, but three times that she was forgiven. And this meant that she was no longer defined by her depravity. They could no longer call her that woman who is whatever. Take your pick. That's not how she's defined now. She's defined by the fact that she's in Christ. She has discovered that with Jesus, there's enough forgiveness for all of our sin. Even if we feel like we're the biggest sinners in the world. You ever feel that way? I do sometimes. How do we know that she was forgiven? It was obvious because of her love, her worship. Her gratitude was a proof that she had received God's grace. Now, where did this leave Simon? What did his response reveal about the true condition of his heart? Well, very simply, the less people have been forgiven, the less they love. And since he loved so little, I don't think it's, there's any doubt that he hadn't been forgiven at all. That was Jesus' point. Maybe his sins were less obvious than hers. And maybe they were smaller than the kinds of sins that this woman committed. But he was a debtor too. Next. The real difference between them was not the size of their sin debt, but the fact that only one of them had been forgiven. And this was clear from the way that he treated Jesus. He didn't treat Jesus with warm gratitude, but with cold indifference. And when Jesus said, He who is forgiven little loves little, he was obviously talking about Simon. And Simon had a a big misunderstanding. He had a big misunderstanding that we have to uh, understand ourselves. Next slide. Morality is not the measure of forgiveness. Morality is not the measure of forgiveness. In other words, if you live a good moral life, that has no bearing on your forgiveness. Did you know that? There are a lot of people who live an outwardly moral life who've never been forgiven. The, the, the measure of your forgiveness is your love for Jesus. Do not miss this. It is your love for Jesus that measures the level of your forgiveness. And when I say level of forgiveness, what I mean is your realization of your level of forgiveness. Once again, what this story does is it it searches our hearts and and it, it causes us to ask, do we have an obvious and extravagant affection for Jesus? Do you love Jesus so much you're willing to do anything for him? Anything. The more we feel that we do not need to be forgiven, 
the more self-righteous we become and the less love we give. And that's the reason why so many people do, do so little in churches. When we understand the depth of the sin that we have been forgiven, then loving Christ with all of our heart becomes easy. And we ask ourselves, just like you do in your marriage, if you have a good marriage and you love your spouse, you ask yourself, you see things, say, you know what, if I do this for my spouse, that'll make their life easier. That's showing my love. Am I correct? I am. I know I am. And it's the same with Jesus. It's not measured. Worship, worship becomes uh, something that's from the heart. And, and the, way we, the way that we can help is to be honest about the sinfulness of our worry, about our greed, about our gossip, or our rage, or whatever it happens to be. Be honest with that sin. And it means coming back to God again and again and again in repentance even after we first come to faith in God. We come back to Jesus over and over and over. Jesus, I offended you with this sin. Please forgive me. I want to repent and turn from my sin. I want to turn to you. And it's an everyday thing. Now, we don't know what this woman's sin is, do we? But there was definite shame attached to it. It could have been some form of sexual sin, but what we do know, and this is important, her sin, whatever it was, was socially unacceptable. Simon, on the other hand, displayed socially acceptable sin. Scorn, selfishness, and pride. In that culture, in that setting, those were acceptable sins. And this is where churches often have it wrong. You know what my experience in church has been? I've been a pastor now for 33 years, a pastor of some sort. There are sins in churches that are so socially unacceptable that if a person were to confess it, even if they were a Christian and public acknowledge that sin, they would be shunned and treated like a pariah. I'm talking about stuff like porn. By the way, many people are in porn. Statistics in churches are barely better than statistics in society. But if you confess that sin or whatever sin it happens to be, the unacceptable sins, you will get shunned. And yet, in those same churches, they tolerate socially acceptable sins and so churches tolerate greed and gluttony and lovelessness and pride pride and more pride and divisiveness and lack of forgiveness and all these things overlooking things and these are tolerated in churches and these are things that tear churches apart meanwhile somebody who already feels the shame of their sin whether it's some form of sexual sin or some other kind of sin, they feel the shame already. They can't make it public because if they do, they're going to be judged. And that only proves that churches have many, many people who do not realize 
the depth of their own depravity and their own sinfulness and how much they have been forgiven. I'm going off script for just a minute, just to let you know. I desire that Providence Bible Church be known as a church where people who have been broken by sin can come and feel accepted and get genuine help and not be shunned. Wouldn't it be great if we could pull the masks off? Let's be honest, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be, that's what God wants in a church. He wants us to be a hospital of sorts. And so when we, when we don't do these things, it proves that we don't understand the true nature of sin. And Jesus offers true salvation to everyone. When we have a deep sense of our own personal sin against God, seeing how sinful we really are, we may fully grasp the wonder of His grace for us in Christ. And it's only then, don't miss this, it's only then that we know how large our debt was. That debt of sin is so large that we would never pay it if we paid for all of eternity. That's what Scripture tells us. The debt of sin that could be canceled only at Calvary. And only then do we know how many of our sins Jesus paid for when He died on the cross. And only then do we know the great debt of love that we now owe to God. Jesus, friend of sinners. Next slide. Now I want to close because there's something in the narrative that if we read it wrong, we'll take, we can take it the wrong way. And I don't think anybody here will take it the wrong way, but I want to clear it up. When Jesus tells Simon that the woman and the woman that her sins are forgiven, people ask, who is this who forgives sins? And that's the question that all of us must ask and remember is, who is Jesus to you? Is he the one that forgave your sins? Is he the one who willingly forgives sins? Who paid for sins? And so in verse number 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And here it is. Here it is. That woman whose name we never learn turned to Jesus in faith. Next. First comes the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Then comes our grateful response of love for Jesus. And throughout this passage, what Jesus has done is he's reasoned from love, or lack thereof, back to forgiveness or its absence. And so what, what the narrative did, and what Jesus did, is he showed that forgiveness must come first. This woman didn't earn forgiveness by her love. It's not a works-based salvation. No, the point of the parable and everything else that Jesus said to Simon was that her love was the proof of her forgiveness. Jesus said it three times that this woman's sins were forgiven. And sometimes, let's be honest here, sometimes it's hard for us to even believe that our sins are forgiven, aren't they? You know, um, I'm going to talk about a sensitive topic for just a second. I have talked to a number of women who had abortions before they came to Christ. And that is something that hangs on them. The guilt 
and it's a false guilt. They were guilty, but if they're in Christ, they're no longer guilty. And what Satan loves to do is to cause someone to feel that false guilt and say, I don't know that Jesus could forgive such a big sinner as me. Whatever your sin, what does Romans say? His grace abounds more, right? Having justified the woman by faith, Jesus sent her away in peace to serve God. And this is the key verse. Because Luke wrote his gospel, in, in Luke 19, verse number 10, it says, to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. And here's a perfect example. To save is to do everything necessary to rescue us from our fallen state. So how was this woman saved? Why were her sins forgiven? And on what basis did she receive eternal life? It was not by the merit of her love, but by the trust of her faith. The love came later in response to her forgiveness, but she was saved by faith. And this clarifies the true biblical way of salvation. God does not ask us to prove our love uh, before He will save us. He offers forgiveness as a free gift of His love. And then once our sins are forgiven, the right and natural response is for us to love Him in return. I'm going to leave with one Christian application. Jesus deserves the most extravagant acts of love and service that we can give. Nothing is too great for the forgiveness that we were given. Amen? How do you show your love to Jesus Christ? Lord, I thank you for this just beautiful, another beautiful story, Lord. The last three have just been wonderful stories in, in the ministry of Jesus, and we thank you for this. And Lord, anyone who knows you, who's in your word, and is growing in Christ, has grief for their sin at the same time that they have joy in their salvation. And I pray that you will help us to see the mountain of sin debt that our loving Savior forgave and paid for when he died on the cross. And may that constant meditation, constantly telling Jesus, thank you for my salvation, will cause us to just be compelled to do acts of love and service. And we serve you and love you by loving and serving your body and telling the lost about the love of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the sin debt that can be wiped away by the payment of Jesus on Calvary. Oh Lord, may we be driven in our worship by a love for you. In Christ's name, amen.